Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, this is your host and creator of the Thoth Hermes podcast, Rudolf, and I'm speaking to you from the northern outskirts of the lovely Austrian capital, Vienna. Welcome back to another episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. I'm very glad to have you with me here again today on February 23rd, 2020. The title of this episode is Transpersonal Magic, which might sound a bit odd, yes, I know, but it links the different facets of today's guests on the show rather well, and this is why I chose it. I will in this episode be speaking to P.T. or Phil Mistelberger from Vancouver, Canada, at the occasion of his new book, The Dancing Sorcerer which has been released very recently. Those of you who have listened to the outro talk of the last episode, yes, some of you really go as far as doing that, and you actually should. There is always interesting information to be heard there. Well, anyway, those of you who did might be surprised because you expected an Ex Libris episode today. Yes, indeed, that's what I had said. But sometimes life and programming changes and Ex Libris shall be on next week only. Today, it's this interview with P.T. Mistelberger. So, this is your first time here on your show? Welcome. And to all the regulars, and again I may say you are becoming more and more when I see the download figures, welcome back. It is great to have you here, all of you. Have you come to this show via one of the podcast outlets like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, iHeartRadio or another? Or are you one of those who love to listen to us on YouTube, even though this is an audio only there as well? Great. In any case, I'm really happy to have you all here. But don't forget, there is also quite a nice website to this show on www.thoshermes.com. That is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And on the website, you do not only find the episodes, all of them from the very beginning, but also other information and features. First and foremost, the show notes to each show, which will bring you more tips and info and especially links to maybe deepen your impressions about the topics and the guests of the episodes. You can also give me feedback there. Yes, please do get in touch with me. I love to read your comments and impressions about our show. Choose on the website between a free voicemail feature the contact page with its message form, or just send me an email to info at 
And of course, you can always go on Twitter or Facebook and send us something there. Also, and I repeat that now, I would love to hear about those musicians among you. You know that I'm always playing music in every episode and I would love to have more of your, the audience's own creative output to present. I know that so many occultists are also active musicians, so be a bit more daring and talk to me about it and we can see how to play your music on this show. And while you are on the website, have you seen those two buttons on the homepage? One says Patreon, the other Donation. Well, yes, you know what comes now. This podcast costs money to produce. I'm not trying to make my life with this podcast. I have an interesting and challenging day job and I'm lucky and glad about it. But I need your support to cover the cost of producing such a show. Thank you to those who have decided to support and who have already done so. But we are still quite a bit off target and therefore, please guys, push one of those two buttons, either with a one-off donation or become a supporter on Patreon where possibilities start at $2 per show, limited to three paid shows per month. That means even a fourth or fifth episode each month will not be charged. Thanks for supporting us. Much appreciated. And on Patreon, you will soon get extra features that will be available to patrons only. And I'll keep you posted about that. Okay, I just talked about music. And of course, music is here again today. Three very different pieces. I have been eclectic again. You know me. I like that. All three songs have, of course, some relation to our topic on the podcast and even partly to this specific episode, but they are really diverse. The first one I will now play for you is a pagan song of Celtic origin. You could probably even call it a Wiccan song. Its title is holy well and sacred flame and the version that you are going to hear is performed by a female group called assembly of the sacred wheel they published this on their album a dream whose time is coming back in 2001 holy well and sacred flame enjoy holy well Oh, 
Holy Well and Sacred Flame, performed by the Assembly of the Sacred Wheel and recorded 19 years ago for their album A Dream Whose Time Is Coming. I think they did that beautifully. Okay, now we are ready for our interview of today and those of you who are really long-time listeners to the show, they will recognize our guest, P.T. Mistelberger, or Phil. He was my guest on the second episode in season one, so on the very second show of all of them, back in early May 2017, almost three years ago. I had then discovered his work through my personal research and what triggered the interview then was his book, The Inner Light, a really nice and deep overview on the occult and esoteric worlds. The fact that we meet here today again was triggered apart from the wonderful discussion we had back then and which you all should go and listen to if you haven't yet heard it. Well, it has been triggered by a release of his new book, The Dancing Sorcerer. And even if we mentioned this also at the beginning of the interview, I have to say it here in the intro as well, because it makes me proud. This new book came into being partly because of that first interview we made back then. Gabrielle McCaffrey from Anathema Publishing had heard Phil's interview on the Thoughts Hermes podcast, bought two of his books afterwards and then decided to get in touch with Phil and that he wanted to work with him. Well, that is what has happened and out came a wonderful and beautiful book. As always with Anathema, those books are real gems with a great touch and feel beyond the content. So, here we are again with Phil Mistelberger, who happens, by the way, to have an Austrian grandfather, as you might be able to tell by his name. It was wonderful to have him back again, to meet again, and after we had cleared a few technical problems, which almost made the interview impossible. But all went well in the end, and so I'm really happy to return with you to the Canadian West Coast, to Vancouver, British Columbia, and talk to P.T. Mistelberger. In about half an hour, in the middle of the interview, I will, as usual, come back to you and we will listen together to another piece of music. There we go. Come and read with me, P.T. Mistelberger. Here comes the interview. I'm very happy to have a returner here on the Thought uh, Hermes podcast. Uh, Phil Mistelberger is back here with us. He was my guest on the second show of all shows on this podcast, which, believe it or not, is almost three years back, which was on May the 4th, 2017. And now uh, it's February 2020 and we have Phil back with us. Good evening, good afternoon to you in Vancouver. Uh, good evening from Vienna. Hello, Phil. Good evening, Rudolf. Nice to be back with you again. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. We had some technical problems, we, we admit, but now we've solved them. And so we are together now, finally. Um, yes, we just, as we're saying, we just went through the hell zones of technical. <laughs> exactly. A good topic to enter what we are going to talk about tonight. No, the reason, well, it was always a reason to talk to Phil, but the 
real, the reality reason today is his new book that was just released. So, well, basically a few days ago, a few weeks ago, we must say by now, The Dancing Sorcerer. And I have it here in front of me. I hold it in hands. It's not only a beautiful book by its content, it's also a beautiful book to have in hand. I have the hardback copy here. It's it's just such a nice touch. It's been published by Anathema Publishing. And I saw you have your copies over there as well, um, Phil. Um, what 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 does the book look and touch? Not just your book. I mean, in general, a book is the touch and feel important to you when you when you read books, when you have books? Oh, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm a uh, lifelong uh, book collector. Mm. So I have close to three 3,000 books in my home. Right. And uh, over time, I think it happens that you begin to appreciate uh, all the dimensions of a book, not just the contents of it. Um, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't really enjoy Kindle books or reading off of a screen very much. I, you know, I'm old fashioned that way, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. like a, a three dimensional book. And so, yes, uh, Anathema does a really good job of uh, uh, producing gourmet specialty books. Right, right. And well, definitely this book is one of those. I must say I'm a bit proud about that book also myself because Gabriel McCaffrey of Anathema Publishing, he admitted that he got to know your name and your your work by that very first interview that we did together and then he bought two of your books actually the one that we were talking about at the time was the inner light and right. then he got right. in touch with you and that's how it all started with this new book so yeah thought hermes podcast is happy about that as well <laughs> all the connections uh, absolutely okay so but uh, you as a canadian of course in a canadian publishing house that's also something that needs to be mentioned that's not that's not so often happening either um yeah. right so uh, let's get delve into that book how i i would like you first uh, um phil you uh, uh, describe for somebody who has not heard about the book, what you would say the book is. It's called Essays on the Mind of the Magician. And, um, well, I don't say more for the moment. We go into some chapters a bit later. We, we talk about the details. But um, when you first approached that subject, when you first approached that book, what was your intention? Who did you want to um, write for when you started it? Well, the uh, subtitle, subtitle of the book is important. So uh, defining it as essays, uh, in my previous five books that I'd written before that, there, there was more of a, say, I would say consistent narrative progression throughout the book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, beginning, middle and end. Uh, there's something of a an advantage of writing a book as a collection of essays because it gives you a little more freedom as an author to explore, uh, you know, different, different avenues, different dimensions, perhaps in a more of a lateral way as opposed to a linear progressive way. And so it's the kind of book that you can open up any chapter and each one is more or less complete unto itself. It doesn't necessarily have to be read in progression. And I, uh, admittedly, I enjoy writing a book, uh, in that way, uh, because of the freedom it gives you to explore. I mean, these chapters were, um, written over a period of time. Uh, a couple of them were written several years ago and then, uh, uh, you know, upgraded over the years. Others were written much more recently. Uh, but the whole thing in the end came together in such a way that 
uh, I, th- I think it works in a, you know, as a coherent uh, structure for a book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but you're of course right. But it, those 10 chapters as they are still, when, when you read the titles, I'm going to do that in a sec. Um, they feel like a compendium. They feel like something that looks at least at first sight, very complete. We talk here about Solomonic versus Faustian magic, for example. For example, we talk yeah. about the Golden Dawn and the Secret Chiefs. We talk about vampires and the magicians. So it's really topics that you hear partly not so often about, but they are overall like a compendium of thought, of magical thought, isn't? aren't they? Well, there's an intention behind it all. And, uh, you know, this, this stage I am in my life right now is this, actually, I turned 61 in a few days. I've been on this uh, path of transformational work for uh, essentially my entire adult life since my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And so my underlying intention with the work I do, uh, both in my private uh, work that I do with individuals and in my writing, is to uh, never lose sight of the fact that what we're involved in is uh, is a process of awakening to the to our deeper nature, to the, the reality of what our nature nature is, who we are, mm. and our place in this universe. And so, uh, I think in fields like the esoteric traditions, in particular, you can get somewhat lost in the detail and the information of it all, mm-hmm. uh, and, and lose sight of the. Uh, you know, the overarching purpose of why one embarks in this in this direction in the first place, which is uh, uh, self-remembrance, Socrates, know thyself. Right. And so everything I write about is uh, designed to, uh, you know, hopefully guide the reader uh, in that direction or if nothing else, at least give them some uh, food for thought. Uh, and the, the essence of this particular book uh, is you know, embracing the zones of the mind or the parts of the subconscious mind, if you will, that are most difficult to look at. And there are many ways of doing this. There are many approaches, some of which I don't even cover in this book. Uh, uh, but the, the, you know, the general overall uh, theme is one of taking responsibility for the parts of our nature that uh, we have forgotten about or that we like to believe are not within us, maybe that are out, we think are out there in the world, uh, you know, the so-called darker angels that exist mm-hmm. within all beings, right? So it takes a tremendous amount of fortitude and courage to face into those zones and to take responsibility for them. And uh, you could say that for every small percentage of people that are interested in the idea of inner development or to use a very overused word spiritual development there may be a, a smaller subset of that group that is truly willing or ready to face into the totality of who they are right yeah right go, go ahead go ahead i didn't want to break yeah well the, the, so the book is really you know oriented towards that and uh i like to provide you know i like to touch on historical uh, elements in my writing. This is this is not an academic uh, study per se. Mm-hmm. It does you know it does have a uh, substantive uh, bibliography, some notes in the back of the book, but it's it's designed uh, for the general reader and uh, to give them some some entertainment as well. As you well know, in esoteric writing, uh, at times or certainly in mystical writing, um, 
it can be similar to some of the more technical branches of philosophy. For right. example, if you, right. if you read Immanuel Kant, he was he was notorious for never giving uh, stories uh, or uh, metaphors. He wrote in very technical language, and some mystical writing can be oriented in that direction as well. Uh, which is fine for what it is, but then there is um, the value of storytelling. Yeah, and so I try to I provide I try to provide a balance in this book of uh, you know personal reportage and storytelling, along with um, you know the, the the intellectual data, the, the historical analysis of of. Of these avenues of thought. Sure, sure. No, but that that's, uh, to me, that's an absolute quality. I, I admitted to you already before we started an interview, and I admit again that I have received the book only about 10 days ago, and I wasn't able to read all 350 pages yet. But I, yeah. I read parts of it and, and several of the, of the essays in there, and I can only underline that they are highly readable. Of course, you need to have a kind of background interest uh, in, into that, but it is it is highly readable. And that, that's one of the qualities to me of that book. Tell me why. Uh, I mean, the bibliography you just mentioned, um, yeah. this is in itself to me um, something that every every seriously interested uh, um, magician, let's let's put it that way, should really study and see uh, to have it as most complete on his on his shelf as uh, as possible because it's a very a very interesting um, selection you made there did you Is well we we live in a very interesting time in that uh as i'm sure you're aware in the last i i would say 30 40 years hmm. there's been a whole movement within western academia to study magic and uh The Western esoteric tradition from a more scholarly perspective, mm -hmm. and there's been tremendous research done uh, in digging out, digging up the you know the old uh, writings, and certainly all the grimoires and so forth, and, and analyzing them. Joseph Peterson's website is extraordinary in and of itself, and he's just one of several that have been dedicating themselves to this. And then there's there, there's entire uh, departments and universities, particularly in Europe, that are looking at this stuff now very carefully. Yeah. Uh, And there's a bit of an irony in that, and I touch on that, I think, in the first chapter of the book, in that many of the academics and scholars are, you know, are analyzing the material and writing about it, but are not necessarily practitioners themselves. Um, and more than that, some of them, I don't give names, but probably you know who I mean, um, are not, they, they reject it, they don't seem, well, they don't want even their students to get involved in one of the orders or systems um, because they say that makes them, um, well, I don't know what, it makes them it makes them too much oriented toward a special system or whatever. Um, would you share that yeah. opinion? Well, uh, no, I wouldn't because um, everyone has to find their own particular, their own particular way. But I do respect, you know, some of the ideas behind that only in as much as we live at a time Uh, where power structures have been uh, looked at very closely. And as you well know, all over the world, uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a revolution going on in that area. Mm. Some, of it's, some of it is good, some of it not so good, in which, uh, you know, the, let's just say the phenomenon of the personality cult is being looked at very carefully, which is where you have an organization that is, uh, you know, dedicated essentially to one personality more than one teaching. Right. Uh, and then you have the, you know, the whole phenomenon of, uh, of cultic consciousness <clears throat> in and of itself, 
I have a pretty good working definition for a cult, which is where the the, the needs of the organization outweigh the needs of the individual. Now, <laughs> by that definition, large organizations, large corporations, uh, militaries and so forth are the ultimate examples of cults. And that's not that they're necessarily bad. Some of them could be good cults. Yeah. But uh, the individual yeah. will is essentially stamped out. Whereas in a, in a mystery school or in a uh, occult in the sense of concealed um, or, or hidden, let's say, from the general public, mm-hmm. which they were for good reason throughout the throughout history. They were concealed for good reason. Uh, the, in theory, the dedication there, there, the orientation there is towards the transmission of the individual. Uh, but as you know, when people come together and work together in systems, there needs to be some sort of organization. And often, inevitably, that leads to a hierarchy. Uh, and these hierarchies, hierarchies are usually structured as uh, you know the, in the form of a pyramid. Uh, so this can, you know, create some problems. Uh, you know, whatever human politics are involved. So I can understand a certain skepticism, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, you know, encouraging uh, students to uh, <laughs> analyze things intellectually first before becoming involved. But it doesn't change the fact that for one who seeks to uh, have the direct experience of the numinous, of of that which is beyond analytical thought, let's say. Um, You do need to have a practice at some point. You need to have a sadhana, the Eastern term for a practice of transformation um, in whatever system you you embrace, uh, if you want to go beyond simply being a scholar of, uh, of the material. Absolutely. I mean, you have a different approach from academia because you uh, have to repeat that because some people might not have heard, not have heard our first interview. You are a transpersonal therapist, right? You you have studied psychology, I believe, and and. Um, oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I you know I, I went through all of that, and there was a time in the early. This is back in the early 1980s, long right. ago, where I withdrew from mainstream academia. Uh, I, I had been in several different major programs in university. Uh, uh, and uh, went traveling for probably four or five years uh, and uh, gaining a great deal of experience, uh, somewhat similar to uh, Alistair Crowley when he was um, older. And Israel Regardi came to him as a young man and was his uh, secretary. And, and uh, Crowley could see that Regardi had the spirit of the true seeker and so forth, but he was. Uh, uh, seriously lacking in life experience. So he encouraged him to take a year off and travel around the world and, and indulge all of his vices. Uh, so I did something like this for several years. Mm. And then when I, when I came back, then I trained uh, in uh, transpersonal therapy, which is uh, non-mainstream therapy, meaning that uh, a transpersonal therapist is somebody who in theory is um, uh, dedicated to going beyond the individual self towards a more mm. of a uh, you know, esoteric or spiritual perspective. So it includes, you know, the methodology from mainstream counseling, of course, really, which boils down to asking questions and listening uh, uh, to another perspective, which in, uh, is closer to Maslow's self-actualization, let's say, which is this uh, idea that there is a higher component to our nature. And this was something that Freud more or less rejected. So the the basis of mainstream psychoanalysis doesn't really doesn't really include the idea of a higher nature. Jung started to introduce that with his idea of individuation. Right. Uh, Freud's was pretty much limited to uh, a super ego, which is a repository of of moral values and so forth. But the idea 
of, of, of sort of a oneness with the universe was something that he rejected. Mm. Uh, he he classified that as a regressive state that was based on memories of oneness with the mother. <laughs> so it's quite, <laughs> very, very interesting. He saw that. That's yeah. why he sort. Of, that's why he rejected that. Um, uh, but if you look into any of the mystical or esoteric traditions uh, throughout history and around the planet, they all include this idea of communion uh, with a higher part of your nature. And of course, in Western, right. Western magic, uh, modern Western uh, high magic, this idea is usually characterized as the holy guardian angel. Yes. Um, and in Solomonic magic, of course, the, the essence of it is uh, it has to begin with this linkage with the higher part of our nature, the holy guardian angel, uh, what they call in yoga, the Atman, the higher part of our mind. Mm -hmm. And then it's possible to, uh, to form a connection with these lower parts of our nature, which have their corresponding essence in other dimensions as well. If you're a metaphysical realist and you believe in the reality of other dimensions or spirits. Uh, but the interesting idea is that these spirits are not technically separate from this part of our individual psyche. Uh, so they have, of course, they have a correspondence there. Uh, and uh, there's, there's, a, there's a, a connection. And the whole idea is that a Solomonic magician uh, doesn't uh, enter into these sort of dealings with the chthonic parts of spiritual reality or of our own individual psyche without having first formed that link with the higher part of the mind. And that, of course, you find that as explained in the uh, in the book of Abramelin, uh, the mage, mm -hmm. right, where mm -hmm. the, um, the uh, initiate is to undergo 18 months. Of, initially, it was thought to be six months, and then uh, Gorge Dane, when he brought out his, uh, his edition in 2006 uh, on more accurate uh, manuscripts, had found that, in fact, it was an 18-month retreat. So I, I myself have done sustained retreats, not as long as eight months or even six months. Uh, I've done retreats as long as 40 days and 40 nights. Which uh, is already quite, quite a bit, right? Yeah. Well, it's more than the average person has done, yes. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I did this at a fairly early part of my life and when I was in my late 20s, was over, uh, over 30 years ago. And I touched on this in the introduction to the book, but I didn't go any right. further on that. I'm actually writing a another manuscript right now based on my experiences in that cabin, the 40 days and 40 nights I spent in that cabin, which I had some uh, uh, extraordinary uh, experiences uh, that has taken me a lifetime to properly evaluate um, what had happened to me at that time. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting, interesting things in life that certainly has been true for me is that the uh, most spectacular spiritual experiences I had and mystical experiences I had were in the earlier part of my adult life. But once I got into my mid-30s and beyond, uh, it became much more about other other facets and other aspects of life, uh, you know, responsibility and organizations and teaching and business and so forth, relationships, um, which was why that famous Advaita sage from India, Harilal Punja, once said that he recommended for anyone interested in, in deeper spiritual truth to really get involved in the work at a younger age because he used to say after the age of 40, it's very difficult because you get bogged down with, uh, you know, financial issues or relationship complexities or your karma start, so to, to use an Eastern term, your karma becomes more entangled. And so uh, in the earlier decades of life, there tends to be less of that history. 
And so there is that potential to really dive deep into the pure, purity of the spiritual experience. And this is something I did uh, in you know my 20s and early 30s. Um, so there, there, there were... Uh, you know, things that I touched on in the in, in parts of the book um, were some of my own uh, resistances that we have as resistance to going deeper inside of oneself. And one of the ideas of being on a retreat or away from, uh, you know, uh, society um, is to eliminate distractions, minimize distractions. Right. And uh, when this ha- and we live in a time now that. Uh, we're so inundated with distractions because of the technology, right? I mean, these smartphones we have, they do everything but service coffee. <laughs> and they're probably going to be able to do that at some point. And so people are living in a state of perpetual distraction. And the amount of information that we are bombarded with has the potential to damage the attention faculties inside of us. And for anyone who seeks to go deeper, they have to develop their capacity to pay attention, their attention faculties. The Gurdjieff talked a lot about this. And uh, isolation time in nature um, is excellent for that because uh, the way it removes all the technological distractions. Right. Right. When I did my 40 days and 40 night retreat, it was in 1988. I did not take a calendar or a watch with me uh, because I, I specifically – so I actually didn't know at any t- necess- what, what time it was at any time of the day. And some d- days I even lost track of what day it was. I, I had to sort of make notches on a, on a, on a wall you know, because I needed to come back to my city. But, um, uh, you know, I really – and, of course, in 1988 uh, – you know, cell phone technology was pretty limited. Most people didn't have a cell phone. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I was going to ask you because, um, say you would be 25 again now, right? So it's 30 years later. Um, what has in your opinion changed about such a retreat? Would, would it still be possible for you if you were 25 today to do such a retreat? What would be the difference, you think? Because, yeah, well, I, I think it would still be possible. But the, the thing is that uh, in, the, in the times we live in now, it, 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 as far as I see it, uh, the temptations are greater because of the technology. Mm. So uh, that doesn't mean it can't be done. I mean, the, it certainly can be done. But because the temptations are greater, you could say that the test uh, would be stronger. Um, to, for example, right. with all the uh, with all social networking, uh, you know what it does is it it makes possible all kinds of connections with people that you might not otherwise have connections with. So it also creates the possibility for more entanglements with people, right? Um, and, and you know more difficulties in if truly breaking free because in order to go deep into oneself. Uh, there has to be a, a decision has to be made, but this also involves practicalities. Uh, the, the other thing on a very practical level is that the cost of living is much higher now. So it's not so easy. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, I work with a lot of younger people, millennial generation, people that are born after 1982 mm-hmm. and many of them struggle just to, you know, cover their daily expenses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. City I live in Vancouver, which yeah. is a fairly expensive city. Yeah. It wasn't that way when you and I were younger. I think you're probably similar to my age. I, I'm one year younger than you, so we're the same age, yeah. Mm. There you go. So, you know, back then, uh, cost of living was very cheap, and so it wasn't that hard to practically arrange 
taking a month off or uh, going traveling in, in Asia or whatever. Sure, but, but set apart the practicalities. Uh, um, do you think if you take a youngster of 25 out of his or her world of today and put him into a retreat of 40 days, um, is that a different experience today than the one you had at age 25? No, I, I don't think so at all because this is precisely why it's called the perennial wisdom tradition mm -hmm. because uh, you know the idea would be that you know the buddha when he did his retreats 25 centuries ago um would not have been essentially in, in, in essence any difference from somebody right. doing a retreat now mm -hmm. so no once the decision has been made but what i the, the point that i'm addressing here is that the temptations are because they're stronger mm -hmm. the resistance to making that decision can be greater now uh, the decision once the decision is made uh to commit oneself mm -hmm. in this direction uh then everything sort of will come together to support that decision but the Uh, the resistance to making the decision seems to be greater now because, mm -hmm. of, all, mm -hmm. because of all the temptations. And, uh, and there's also arguably um, the uh, major lessons for the time we live in are more to do with relationship right now. People, I mean, I teach trainings in, in relationship work, which are essentially shadow work trainings, people mm -hmm. seeing their box. Uh, and they're the causes of their communication breakdown and so forth. Uh, if you take a look at the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, mm. late 19th century in England, um, you know, the main cause of their breakdown seems to be related to yeah. uh, projection and failures in communication and, and you know, and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. therapy, the therapy part, the psychotherapy part uh, was in all likelihood missing and, um, And, and, you know, the willingness maybe to look at some of this stuff was was missing. And it, when one gains an esoteric knowledge but is not doing one's uh, psychotherapy, one's not examining the structures of one's own ego, then it's tempting to use one's esoteric knowledge as a way to uh, to reinforce uh, projections. A, power, a power tool, right? Well, a power tool, but the, the main problem is that it reinforces this idea that the problem is outside of me, not in me. Yeah. I have nothing to do with these problems that I perceive that are outside of me. So it can actually strengthen that sense of separation from the universe, um, you know, rather than loosening the boundaries. So one starts to understand that one is part of something that is greater than oneself. And that's really what the mystical tradition is about. Is that a problem that you would sense in most types of theurgical magic in um, ceremonial magic, which always calls, calls and creates the outer world and not something in yourself? Well, I mean, the, the challenge is the same in any any tradition and uh, this is true for example yoga is uh, in its most theoretical sense is based on the unification of the atman the higher part of one's individual mind with the brahman which is the cosmic yeah. self right so but you can the whole idea is that you can't form a a, a relationship with the atman with the ultimate view of understanding that you really are the atman mm. that that's actually who you are you can't get there if you don't face into what's in the subconscious and all the resistance to it, right? Right. So all the traditions, all the traditions make a reference to this. The Christian traditions, they call the Christian tradition, they call it the original sin, which is this mm. idea that there's something faulty in us. Uh, 
in the Buddhist tradition, <clears throat> they refer to the the self, uh, this notion of a constructed self that is inside of us that we believe is real. Uh, however way you frame it, it reduces to a type of uh, resistance to moving into the higher realms. And this is what I was talking about in the earlier part of the book, when it, the right. very introduction of the book where I'm talking about yeah, yeah. Mm. the experiences that I went through uh, when I made a very, very deep commitment to uh, realizing you know, spiritual enlightenment using the, the Zen approach at the time and the Buddhist approach. Mm. And in so doing, uh, with some lack of guidance, but no lack of zeal and enthusiasm. But in so doing, I dissolved the boundaries between my conscious and subconscious in a way that was more akin to a, a rupture, sort of like a violent rupture. Right. And uh, it, you could, you know, to frame this in, in, say in Solomonic terms, it would be like the, the magician suddenly, uh, you know, opening the brass uh, jar and letting all the, all the genies and all the spirits out at once. Right. Mm-hmm. So we, I was faced with confronting all these, you know, the demonic aspects of my own subconscious, all the unhealed elements of my family lineage going back generations and generations. And this is true in virtually every family. There are, there are um, you know, there, there, are, uh, there are unhealed structures within every family system that get funneled down to the present time person. Uh, for example, in recent generations, if you've ever done any ancestry research, and, you know, you know, I've tried some of that because you were trying to help me being a fellow Austrian. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My father's lineage. And you go back a few generations, you find large families, uh, families that have six, eight, ten children commonly. And um, it seems fairly clear that the greater purpose of these families, you know, was to populate uh, uh, the earth. But we're not in that place anymore because now we're dealing with, you know, an extreme spike in population since the last few decades. So we're really dealing with overpopulation right now. So it's not it's really not an emphasis anymore for people to have children necessarily. Or if they do, they commonly have smaller families. And so there is this opportunity to to work on oneself. But what you discover in the decision to work on yourself is all the unhealed uh uh, elements, all the unhealed aspects of your own family lineage and um, you know, the need to face into that. So the work uh, to be done there is fairly significant and uh, it takes a lot of resolve and a lot of commitment uh, to face into this stuff. Do you think, um, picking you up on, the, on that family question, do you think as nowadays many of us in the West leave, lead a rather comfortable life with a high life expectancy. And also that's why, of course, we don't need 10 children because most of them would survive, etc. But do you think that a certain type of suffering is not present in normal everyday life anymore and that makes it more difficult to find your, your own self, let's put it that way? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I think, uh, you know, every generation deals with its own unique um, forms of suffering. Um, I think some of them are maybe not so obvious now. If you, I mean, if you look back and say the war generations, you know, going back to the mid 20th century and early 20th century, the suffering was more obvious. Right. Um, now it's a little more, su but now we deal with all kinds of psychological issues. Uh, depression mm. uh, is, you know, statistically seems to be at a much higher uh, frequency now. Um, well, attention deficit disorders that were barely understood in the past. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, much of this is probably related to the technology we have. Um, 
So the suffering, uh, I think, has always existed. I think it's inherent to, to human nature. Mm-hmm. The big problem is is that uh, we humans have this extraordinary ability to deny our own suffering mm-hmm. or to pretend that we're not suffering. So the, in the Buddhist tradition, they say, for example, one does not start on the path of transformation until one has been disappointed with life. Um, that's a very rough paraphrase. But essentially what it means is reversing denial. Right. It's just like an Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, you know, you stand up, say your name and declare that you're an alcoholic. And the whole purpose of that is to uh, is to put a stop to denial because right. nothing can nothing can happen as long as denial is still functioning. And denial is extremely powerful. It is the ability to convince people or to tell people that there's really nothing to work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only problem is that the universe uh, hasn't delivered you your ideal relationship or uh, the money hasn't fallen into your lap yet or, you know, it's always reduced to some sort of silly caricature about how sooner or later this perfect something's going to show up in your life and make everything better like Santa Claus, right? Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, thank you for that explanation. I like this wonderful mix of a highly knowledgeable and also practicing occultist, magician with a professional trained and active psychologist. This mix also triggered a somewhat strange and maybe even contradictory title of this episode, Transpersonal Magic. But PT really sees things from both sides, and this is what creates this special approach to all things occult and esoteric with him. Okay, guys, I promised you some music for this break, and I promised three very different songs, and here we go. Song number two after the pagan song we had before is now country music. Country music at its best. Produced by a young group from Texas, Brian Christopher and the Wild Oats. What brought me to this song was the title. We're going to hear a song called Faustian Deal. Because as you will realize in the second part of this interview, Dr. Faust and his deal with Mephistopheles is a subject that you find several times in this book, The Dancing Sorcerer. And it's really great country music that you're going to hear now, full of joy and tempo. Brian Christopher and the Wild Oats Faustian Deal. Well, I was down now, couldn't find my sound. I couldn't make a dollar playing in this town. I guess you never heard me stumbling around. So he pulled up in his brand new shiny Cooperville He said, you know I'm here, I'll offer you a deal I'll give you anything, but I need that soul you hear And I said, wait a minute, friend, before you write that check I've been staring down a bottle, dude, I ain't finished yet I need some time to think about your little deal Before I take them keys and just drive on out of here He said, just take your time, but I could see those fiery eyes They were telling me Desperately needing that dotted line sign. I won't play the book. I won't play the book. Now I'll just keep this train rolling. Won't be damned if I do. I won't play the book. I won't play the book. Now I'll just keep this train rolling straight right on through. And if I take some time to catch that silver line, can't you see I'm throwing steam in the 
yourself a seat I'll pour you a drink If you open up that little black heart I'll listen to you sing You said you know it's true I've only got a few I don't know why I even try Boy, I'm telling you And I said I won't play the Drink. I'm damned to be the damned, and I can't catch a break. But I got sympathy from the stones. Lake didn't need my help, and Willie took the high road, did it all himself. The man in black just scared me, he kept me on the run. And Charlie Daniels took me, cause he's one bad son of a gun. And I said, I won't play the Christopher and the Wild Oats, Faustian Deal, really cheering us up, isn't it? Back to Faustian Deals now in P.T. Misselberger's new book, The Dancing Sorcerer. By the way, I now correctly say Faust because P.T. has corrected me. I said Faust all the time. I thought that was the English way to say it. Sorry about that, guys. In the interview, I said Faust, but I think you understand what I meant. Okay, listen to the second part of that interview where we delve more in detail into the book, where I pick a few treated subjects in the essays of that book and let Phil tell us more of his views. And we also get into much broader subjects, highly interesting, where you can feel the enormous knowledge that Phil calls his own. Immediately after our talk, you'll hear song number three. And with it, I want to play for you once again a piece from the wonderful collection of compositions by Frater F. from Sweden. This time it's his song Path from the collection Sarod II. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one just as much as the others that I have already played in earlier episodes. For now, we go back to Vancouver and meet... P.T. Mistelberger again. Now, let's delve a little bit in a few chapters of that of that great book of yours. So maybe the first we should take a bit is the, the very first one, which also gave the title, the essay gave the title to this book, which is called The Dancing Sorcerer um, and the Fall of Humanity. And surprisingly, you start with those um, very early, those very early drawings in in 
in Spain and in France in in those caves, right? In the first human artistic expressions, as one would put it. And they often show images that probably relate to magic, right? So, and from there you, you try to give your definition of magic. Can you tell us a bit more about what inspired you with those images and what the dancing sorcerer apart from that image from the cave really is for you? Well, that's, um, you know, that whole thing is, uh, it's really interesting. I, I, I became aware of that uh, cave image many, many years ago. Um, and then, uh, was, uh, uh, reading a work by Ronald Hutton, the English historian, uh, who's written some really good books on witchcraft and paganism, mm -hmm. uh, where he was, he was discussing the fact that the, uh, sketch, Uh, by Henri Bruel that had been, you know, in the public uh, domain for a long time. Everyone had, had believed that this was a, um, a figure that had antlers on his head and so forth. And what uh, Hutton was talking about in his book is that uh, uh, when people had analyzed the sketch and compared it to the actual cave photos, Uh, there, there was a, a very, very good case to be made that, that, that there were no actual antlers on the head, that they were just cracks in the wall. Okay. And so, so the, the, you know, the, the therianthrope, which is what it is, it's a part man, part beast had been misperceived and it was not the, it was not the Lord of animals or the horned God or any, any such thing as this. Uh, it was something much more simpler than that. It was just, a it's a, it's a male because you can see the, um, the male sexual organs in the image. Uh, but it's a man dressed up in some sort of animal skins. So the most simple interpretation of it was that it's a primitive shaman or a primitive magician uh, uh, using sympathetic magic. So the basic basis of sympathetic magic is to resonate equally with uh, that which you wish to change. So in other words, if you want to form a relationship with animals, you become that animal in your imagination mm -hmm. and then you can form a link with that. Uh, now, This is understood in psychotherapy as reality pacing. So rea the essence of reality pacing is to enter the world of another person without making them wrong for it. So just a very simple example. If someone sits down opposite you and they're really upset, uh, it, what most people will do in a situ situation like that is they will try to talk the person out of their upset feelings. They'll tell them, well, you know, look at the brighter side of things or, or you shouldn't be upset or here's another possible way to look at this and so forth. And oftentimes this results in the per person feeling just more irritated. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is because they're not actually being heard by the other person. So what everyone craves deep down is to be heard and, and validated for where they're at. So in reality pacing, if a person sits in front of you and says, you know, Rudolph, I'm really angry and so forth. Uh, the simplest way to uh, to facilitate that moment is to just validate what they said. Yeah, I can see you're really angry. I can see you're upset. <laughs> and then they suddenly feel, you know, understood. And so that becomes easier to go into the next moment. Uh, just like you and I, before this interview, mm -hmm. <laughs> trying to figure out the, the, the Comcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> That was an example of reality. Pacing. In German, we say, um, take the wind out of the sails. <laughs> There you go. Perfect. Perfect. Right, right. So this is this is actually a form of very a very rudimentary form of uh, sympathetic magic. Um, now this same technique can be used to manipulate a situation. Definitely. Uh, there are many approaches to that. Some of the darker forms of that are you know, like gaslighting, where you're mm. trying to 
talk a person out of their experience of reality. Mm. But there's the, the other approach, which is that of in politics is called the way of the demagogue, right? So a demagogue and Trump is, uh, you know, the American president Trump has been heavily accused of this one. A demagogue is one who tells you what you want to hear. Right. Right. So if you want to hear a certain thing, the, the, dem- the demagogue will say, that's, yes, that's exactly the way it is. He's reinforcing you in order to get your vote, of course. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a manipulative technique. Um, but in magic, the idea was that uh, by becoming the target of your attention, becoming very close to the target of your attention, you can enter into that world and gain information about it and possibly even change it. Uh, in the criminal, uh, in the, you know, the justice criminal world mm-hmm. of um, criminal profilers, for example, when they're working with, um, say, serial killers and so forth, this is another technique they use. And right. oftentimes they're playing with fire because if you're mentally, psychologically mimicking uh, the uh, psychodynamics and the behavior of a psychopath or a crazy person, you run the risk that you could start taking on some of that yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're entering that world and uh, there becomes the possibility of um, influencing the world that you're entering. So uh, this is, you know, this is one of the basis of, of sorcery uh, throughout uh, throughout history or of lower forms of magic is to resonate with the, the target that you wish to change and then uh, adapt some sort of changes in your own behavior, which in theory will then affect the thing that you're resonating with. Um, now, some of this was based on logical thinking called the post hoc fallacy or magical thinking. The post hoc fallacy is event A came event B, therefore event A must be the cause of event B. Mm-hmm. So in hockey, you know, I use this amusing example at, at times. In, 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 in NHL hockey, North American hockey, the, the um, players about 30 years ago decided, decided uh, when they became near uh, the playoffs at the end of the season to grow their beards. Mm-hmm. And they did this because one hockey team back in the early 1980s, I think it was the New York Islanders, had grown their beards uh, prior to the playoff run and they ended up winning the Stanley Cup. Okay. So this became a super, it became a superstition. And they're still doing it to this day. Every year at playoff time all the hockey players grow their beards. Okay. And so you have all these guys skating around the ice with long beards when they're, you know, playing in the in the playoff seasons in the spring. And so all forms of superstition are based on the post hoc fallacy, which is because event came event A came before event B, event A must be the cause of event B. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, magical magical thinking is what it's described as, and uh, James Fraser, the uh, you know the 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 writer, famous occult historian, right. mytholo- mythologist, early twentieth century, uh, when he was writing the Golden Bough, he was the first one to sort of explain this quite clearly, and this affected Freud, who was quite influenced by it, uh, by James Fraser. And, you know, one of the reasons why probably one of the reasons why Freud was, you know, largely against the occult because he saw it as an irrational uh, misuse of uh, logical principles. Um, but there's another uh, avenue here, and that's the, you know, the Solomonic approach, which is uh, in its purest sense, when you get beyond all the demonological aspects of it, the more cruder sense, uh, is really a psychological enterprise of of uh, one seeking to uh, align with higher possibilities and uh, achieve a state of integration or wholeness within oneself by establishing relationships with aspects of one's psyche through spiritual connections with actual spirits. So, uh, 
you know, and I, I, I got into the whole, um, you know, cave art aspect because I wanted to establish that there is a lineage here, if you will, or provenance or, uh, you know, a continuity throughout history. It's mm-hmm. been going on throughout history mm-hmm. of, uh, of those that have always sought to penetrate the deeper mysteries of the universe. And you could say that the shaman of 15,000 years ago was the scientist and the psychotherapist and the priest all rolled into one. Sure. So that doesn't mean that they, they were, you know, that this was a, a more advanced approach. It certainly certainly wasn't. In, in, in all likelihood, it was a far more primitive approach. And sometimes he was even the blacksmith, as Mircea Eliade points out, and, and, and um, gives a special a special um, hint to what fire and um, and and yeah, what fire and heat meant to people, right? Yes. Mm. Yeah. All the, all those things were, if, you know, in those times, uh, the different domains of approaching knowledge, uh, you know, science, uh, religion, mysticism, and magic were essentially fused. They didn't really start to differentiate until the early modern era, you could say, sure, uh, sure. 15th, 16th, 17th century. Right? Sure, sure. But now we live with some of the limitations of specialization. Um, <laughs> yeah, and now it's gone the other way around, doesn't it? Well, you know, exactly. You know, I, I, I'm just, you know, remembering here, I had a, a colleague back in the late 1980s was training with me at the time who, uh, you know, became interested in transpersonal thought approaches, mm-hmm. transformational work and so forth. And he had a PhD and his PhD was in ornithology, the study of a particular bird, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which was, you know, a significant accomplishment because, uh, uh, you know, a doctoral degree is an original contribution to the body of knowledge of the human race. Sure. But it necessarily has to be extraordinarily speci- uh, uh, specialized, right? Right. And uh, uh, I, I mean, this is, you know, you know, it's, there's nothing unworthy about this, but I've always uh, admired the, the ideal of the Renaissance man or woman who's someone mm-hmm. who uh, embraces as many dimensions as possible, right? And so the magician, in theory, the archetype of the magician was one who who aspired to that, to taking all knowledge as his, as his uh, province, so to speak. Yeah, uh, definitely. Do you do you make? Uh, well, of course, probably you say yes. You make a difference between the so-called high magic and low magic, but I mean more in a more profound way. Is it a different way of expression? Um, Or is it basically something also psychologically uh, different uh, when you practice high magic or low? I use those terms, but you, uh, I don't like them so much. But you know what I want to say about that? Well, no, absolutely. Well, I mean, low magic is uh, essentially the art of manifestation. You know, that's really what it boils down to. And even in the old uh, grimoires, when mm. uh, <clears throat> you know, based on the idea of forming contracts. Uh, you know, with uh, with uh, lesser spirits or demons or what have you, the idea was to have them accomplish something for the magician, right? Mm-hmm. So it was something getting something done vicariously by hiring, you know, an external force, let's so to speak, mm-hmm. in its crudest aspect, right? Uh, but when you, even that, when you reduce that, what you're left with is, uh, a f- you know, a, a causing change in one's immediate environment uh, in some way. Uh, high magic is very different. So high magic is uh, is really more, uh, you, 
could call it a, a divine remembrance or a actual realization of one's actual nature, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there's no reason why the two can't go together. Um, there's some interesting examples of this from the East, uh, say Milarepa and Padmasambhava. So Padmasambhava was the Indian saint who essentially was responsible for transmitting Buddhism from India to Tibet. He and Shen, Shankarachita, who was a monk at that time. Uh, but Padmasambhava, Guru Rinpoche, as he was also known, is known in the legends as someone who was a magician who actually uh, converted demonic forces in Tibet into uh, guardians of the Buddha Dharma. So in other words, he was very similar, similar to Solomon. So he was working with lower spirits and uh, you could say retraining them and hiring them to work for him in a different way so as to do something productive with all their destructive energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was also a Buddhist saint, one who was fully enlightened and understood that the personal self is a construct and uh, he was to live, to use Matrix terminology, the movie The Matrix, he was living fully in the red pill zone, not mm-hmm. the blue pills. <laughs> so it was one example. And the other one is uh, Milarepa, who was the famous uh, Tibetan yogi saint who lived around the 12th century AD and he he started off as a low magician or actually a black magician. Uh-huh. It's trained by his, uh, his mother sent him off to... Um, an advanced sorcerer who trained him in those arts because she wanted him to uh, wreak vengeance on some family members uh, that had, uh, uh, you know, that had betrayed her. And uh, he did this, and then he went through uh, a very profound metanoia, uh, or a pain of conscience, as we sometimes call it, a remorse of conscience, in that he, he experienced tremendous remorse for what he had done, mm-hmm. and in so doing, uh, made a decision to shift, you could say, from, uh, you know, from lower forms of magic to higher forms of magic. And so and so, and so doing <clears throat> the old saying, when the student is ready, ready, the teacher appears, he discovered Marpa. Marpa was a famous, uh, very powerful Tibetan enlightened uh, master. And then he apprenticed himself to Marpa and burned off all of his karma, some very painful ordeals he had to go through. And ended up, you know, being recognized as one of the great enlightened saints of Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. But he went through he went through all the different levels. Uh, so the same thing with the historical Buddha. He was uh, he he spent six years in the forest and gained all kinds of mind powers or psychic powers or what they call cities in the Eastern tradition, uh, which included control of spirits and so forth. Yeah, but then he realized this was not giving him the highest enlightenment that he was looking for. And so he resolved to sit under the banyan tree until that enlightenment uh, uh, visited him. Mm-hmm. And according to the legends, he was visited by Mara, who was the essentially the Buddhist Satan uh, who tempted him and tested him in so many ways. And the, the Buddha passed those and became the enlightened one. It's a very similar uh, parable with Jesus in the, uh, in the New Testament is 40 days and 40 nights 40, in the desert. Exactly. I was thinking of that when you mentioned your 40 days and 40 nights earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the word quarantine, of course, is also linked to that, those 40 days. And, and we don't, I'm, and it, there you go. it has its origin in such thought. There you go. And yeah, who, and who shows up, you know, when Jesus is, is in his uh, solitude, but um, Satan, right? And the word Satan in Hebrew means adversary. Mm-hmm. It's a tester. Right. It's a tester. So he's essentially, it's very similar to the Green Knight in the Holy Grail uh, mythology. It's the one, uh, I sometimes call it the worthy enemy. Castanator referred to as the worthy enemy. It's the thing that shows up in your life um, that 
is there to show you the most forsaken and unredeemed aspects of your of own self. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I have to uh, go back to the book because there is one thing that really strikes me. Um, you mentioned Solomonic magic several times while we were talking uh, now, and um, there is the second chapter that's called Solomonic versus Faustian magic. But that that Faust, that uh, uh, that figure of Faust appears not only in three chapter titles. The others are D. Kelly and False Brothers in Elysium. And the last is, I think, The Trickster, The Missing Devil and The Redemption of False. But even within yeah. other chapters, I remember Dragon Magic, for example. Uh, yeah. um, False is an important figure for you. So yeah. ca can you expand a little bit on that? Maybe by starting with this Salomonic versus Faustian and from there, take it on with Faust. What is he for well, you or... Yeah, I mean, the legend of Faust uh, is uh, extremely important in Western uh, Western culture because, as uh, the literary critic Roger Shattuck had pointed out uh, years ago, there were only two legitimate Western legends or myths that, that are not sourcing in the ancient world, in the Mediterranean world, and those are the legends of Faust and the uh, Holy Grail. Right. Uh, the, you know, the legend of the Holy Grail and King Arthur, which really began with Geoffrey of Monmouth in the 12th century, and that, mm -hmm. that fabricated uh, book he wrote about the history of the English kings. Uh, so, and Faust, you know, was reimagined re many times. I mean, right. the Faust book was originally produced in, in Germany in the 16th century, mm -hmm. and then Christopher Marlowe. Uh, produced his own version. Uh, the playwright uh, was Shakespeare's contemporary, mm -hmm. The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus. Um, and then, of course, Goethe, the German uh, yeah. poet, uh, uh, over two centuries later, produced his version, Faust, which was different. In, in Goethe's version, uh, Faust is redeemed at the end of the story, um, whereas in Marlowe's, he is not. In Marlowe's mm -hmm. version, which is the more traditional version, he's... Uh, he has to go into the great emptiness at the end. Uh, Mephistopheles uh, comes to claim his soul after 24 years. So Faust is an, a, an extremely important uh, archetype to understand because he he is the scholar, initially he's a scholar, who becomes so bored, terminally bored, I called it, or he becomes um, fed up with all possibilities of gaining human knowledge in the traditional way. And as a result, he calls on... Uh, he calls on a very powerful force uh, to come and break him out of his state of being, and, and uh, the, you know he gets an answer, and the answer is the spirit Mephistopheles, whose name literally means one who does not uh, one who does not like the light. Mm -hmm. uh, when you take the word apart, um, it's very similar to uh, uh, Lucifuge Rofakel, who is the prime deity of the grimoire of the red dragon or the grand grimoire which mm -hmm. means the one who shuns the light um sort of the opposite of lucifer which is the light bearer lucifuge mephistopheles is the light fleer mm -hmm. so this is uh, a force that's called on and it is spelled out in a very obvious dramatic way in these stories as a as a tempting force uh, that will give you anything you want uh, in exchange for your soul after in this case 24 years uh but, you know, seen as a more metaphorical light, uh, people can relate to this because anytime we sell our soul out, the, the, you know, the, the word 
the name Faust has even entered the English language as the term Faustian. Mm -hmm. So Faustian arrangement is when you sell yourself out for a short-term gain. Now, why would anyone do that? One would only do that because one has lost faith uh, in a higher or deeper purpose for one's life. Mm. Uh, now, the Solomonic magician, in th in theory, again, when we boil this down to its uh, you know essential elements, uh, when you go back to the legends of Solomon in the Old Testament, the ring that he receives from uh, you know Archangel Michael, mm -hmm. as also explained in the Testament of Solomon, which was written a thousand years after that. Uh, that ring is the key because it represents symbolically, not the physical ring, but that what it symbolizes is that uh, compact, if you will, that uh, contract uh, with the divine. So it's a type of a surrender uh, that I'm going to embrace the reality that there's something outside of my own ego system. Now, the Faustian magician is, is one who has given up that search, so to speak, and uh, no longer believes that there's anything outside of his own ego system, but he also meets a dead end, uh, a type of horizontal uh, movement uh, vertically. He reaches a ceiling which he can't go any higher, so he needs to be broken out of it by something else. And so he has to make an arrangement, um, you know, that um, spells doom for him in the long, uh, in the long run. Mm -hmm. Now, everyone can relate to this in some level. When one reaches an exhaustion with life, uh, and uh, no longer believes that it's possible to break out of a certain situation without compromising yourself seriously, right? right. You know, like in the, in the typical uh, story, literature, or even in popular culture through a movie and so forth, the, the way they're often designed, the narrative or the plot is often designed that in the beginning, someone tells a lie or there's a falsehood of some sort uh, that happens and it gradually builds over time so that by the end of the story, it's become so complicated, you don't know how to get out of it anymore. And uh, many people can relate to this. Uh, problems building upon problems upon problems. And so that you reach, this, you reach this point where you no longer have the belief or the faith or the trust or even the willingness to, um, to get out of the issue on your own. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. and so you start, you start to make deals with devils, as it were. Right. 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 And how would you in two or three sentences define Faustian? Thank you for correcting me because I tried to pronounce it the English way. But of course, it's Faustian, <laughs> Faustian magic. What what's your definition of it? Well, it's uh, it's an arrangement of some sort. Right. Mm -hmm. That is. Um, You know, the simplest way to understand this psychologically is uh, a Solomonic magician establishes a relationship with their higher mind or holy guardian angel. Let's call it that, right? Mm -hmm. Or the, mm -hmm. the divine. Mm -hmm. uh, what does that mean to establish a relationship with the divine? Really, it simply means to be committed to some sort of a practice, right? Where on a daily basis, you're making that effort to, uh, to quiet your mind and to tune into the numinous or the spiritual dimension of life, right? Mm -hmm. And then once that is done to a certain degree, uh, then it's possible to turn within and face the darker zones of one's mind. And the idea that is that when relating to these forces, uh, you're going to be lifting them up, so to speak. So uh, Lon Milo Duquette has this sort of clever metaphor that he explains in some of his writings of the CEO, the middle manager, and the employees. Mm -hmm. 
Right, or the the higher mind, the middle mind, and the lower mind. Mm-hmm. And the higher, the middle mind cannot form a proper working relationship with the lower mind unless he or she has first formed that link with the higher mind. So a middle manager needs to be in good relationship with their CEO, right? Right. And then, right. And then they can handle their employees better. Or or a military. You could use a military analogy the same same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in a Faustian arrangement, what happens is the let's call him the middle manager again, or the, the conscious ego allows itself to be controlled by the lower forces rather than the other way around. So a proper relationship with the lower forces is raising them up by transmuting their energy. So for example, if we think of one of these lower elements as say representing anger, and many of these demons are often represented as angry critters, right? Uh, well, anger is a powerful powerful energy in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And it can be harnessed and used for all sorts of creative aspects in life. The Tibetan teachings in particular have very specific uh, teachings related to transforming negative emotions, which is essentially what this boils down to, right? <clears throat> uh, now, in the cosmic perspective, the idea there is that the magician is involved in the redemption of the entire universe. Mm-hmm. So this is, you find this reflected in the, in the, in the, in the legends of Hermes and Zoroaster and even Christ himself, who's clearly in a pure sense is a Solomonic magician. I mean, there's elements in the New Testament where he's... Yeah, Osiris as well, right? Osiris, all these guys. But but Christ, I mean, is is interesting because in the New Testament, there's, you know, the stories from, say, Acts where the, the, you know, the demons are... um, chased out of humans and sent into into swine and all the exorcisms that he's conducting and so forth. So he's working with those energies directly uh, himself. Mm-hmm. But Faustian magician is one who has uh, lost the link with the higher mind, mm-hmm. right? So sort of like a middle manager who has uh, lost his connection with his CEO. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> These are crude terms here, but I think you know where I'm going. Yeah, sure. And so, uh, the, the, you know, he's on his own, and so he runs a much greater threat of being controlled. Uh, by. Or, here's another analogy. Think of uh, a pack of wolves that will respect a, an, an alpha wolf. Mm-hmm. And so if the alpha wolf is no longer there and the secondary wolf is trying to deal with the pack of wolves, there's a much greater risk that the secondary wolf is going to be killed or overcome by the other wolves, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, okay, got you. Yeah, that was a that was a good analogy. Yes, absolutely. The, absolutely. the beta wolf. Let's call it the beta wolf. The beta wolf, yeah. <laughs> well, um, one last question before we have to come to end to the end, I'm afraid already, but um, you put in the end, and I was fascinated by that, in the end of the book, as an appendix, you put a general survey of Goethe's spirits, um, almost in a statistical way. I find it fun, interesting. Uh, why did you do that? What, what, what inspired you to that? Well, you know, in all my reading up on the, uh, in the in the Goetia and the, the you know the various treatments of it, I hadn't seen anything like that uh, done yet. Uh, it may uh, someone may have done it. I just may not be aware of it. I'm not. I don't think so. I think of uh, you know some of the scholars that I respect very much that have worked with this material, like uh, Jake Stratton Kent, mm-hmm. Joseph Peterson, of course, um, 
you know, even Stephen Skinner, although I had a problem with his interpretation of Jung, uh, you know, they've done tremendous work in this area, but I hadn't seen this kind of a survey done yet. But I will say that the survey that I did in the back is very approximate. I mean, it's uh, I'm not even really going into the different Sloan manuscripts per se. There, so there's there's grounds for doing a much more thorough survey in this. But I wanted to – the main th- uh, thing I wanted to illustrate is something I'd noticed in overlooking these spirits uh, and, the, and the attributes that were given to them by the scribes down through the centuries, which is how closely they approximate the human psyche. So, for example, there are very few war demons that are, are dealing with, um, you know – in war in its, in its purest sense, like four or five of them. Uh, right. Very few storm demons. There, you know, there are. There's an interesting balance of of good and bad. Uh, there are many that are ambiguous, that are gray, and this is very reflective of the human the human psyche. So they're very closely related to human uh, human psychodynamics, uh, which sort of gives some credence to. Alistair Crowley's words back in the early 20th century, uh, which he wrote when he was a young man, uh, when he identified the, the spirits of the Goetias corresponding to portions of the human brain. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm not that uh, materialistic. And, I, and Crowley, I think, you know, he, he revised that view over the years. Uh, he made it more subtle, a little more psychological, a little more spiritual. Um, uh, I personally subscribe to the reality of other dimensions in a literal sense and uh, discarnate intelligences because I've had direct experiences of them myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I believe they correspond directly to aspects of our human psyche. There's there, there's a direct relationship there. So in that sense, Crowley was accurate, although he was expressing it in a very crude way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in looking at, you know, doing a little statistical survey of these spirits, what I found was how interesting and how obvious it became at that point. Uh, of their relationship to the human psyche. So that's not to say that they're not real, but but that they're they're essentially mirrors or reflections of our own nature. So you could say that we are extensions of the fallen spirits. Right. And right. anyone who knows human nature knows that's true anyway. So there's no big surprise there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I really, I, I found it interesting what you did there. I just thought it was a, a nice addition to that Already very interesting and very nice book. Well, Phil, my, my final question to you is you maybe partly answered that already in the very beginning of our talk. I was going to uh, ask you what's up next, because you mentioned that you were working on a manuscript about your 40 days in the desert, so to speak. Um, but um, no, any a, other plans? Or? Few, uh, mm-hmm. I've got a few irons in the fire. I'm going to, uh, you know, that's one. And then uh, another larger project I'm working on is uh, the nature of consciousness and um, the afterlife. Uh, mm-hmm. And how this relates to uh, some of the deeper philosophical writings of the, you know, the philosophers have written about throughout history, even a little bit of quantum physics and so on. Okay. So uh, I'm exploring that as well. And then there's an, a third manuscript that I'm also working on called the uh, the Guru Chronicles, which is uh, years of an account of my years of experiences with various gurus because um, I've been exposed to some very interesting, uh, and, you know, uh, teachers. Of transformation throughout the decades. Mm-hmm. So, 
Lots yeah. of stories to tell. Lots that, of stories to tell. That sounds interesting, and we are all looking forward to that. Well, maybe in a couple of years, you'll be back with one of those here. <laughs> maybe, maybe sooner than that. Maybe sooner than hopefully, that. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. I mean, the one thing about, uh, you know, getting older is you do have more stories to tell. And so it becomes more about uh, the transmission of stories. Uh, and uh, this is, for me personally, this is the time of my life to begin telling more of those stories. Well, great. Do tell us stories here on the Thought Hermes podcast. Thank you. And um, well, it was fascinating also for me to have that perpetual transition between magic and psychology that you offer us here and it's it's really fascinating to talk to you and very thoughtful and i learned again a lot a lot from you in that hour so thanks phil for being with me and with us here on the thought Hermes podcast today um my pleasure rudolf always a pleasure to talk to you thank you and have a good rest of the day over there in vancouver and well speak soon my fellow austrian yeah <laughs> thank you <laughs> bye now Okay, take care.
Path from the collection Zarod 2 by Frater F. Many thanks to P.T. Mistelberger to have returned to the Thought Hermes podcast today and been with us around his freshly released essay collection, The Dancing Sorcerer, published this month by Anathema Publishing Montreal. A beautiful book that should be in your cupboard and in your hands, of course, while you read it. Okay, my friends and listeners, this was episode 8 of our season four on the Thoth Hermes podcast. Thank you for being with us once again and for sharing PT's knowledge. I hope there was something in it for all of you and hope to have you back next week in the next episode. Well, that next week's episode will now finally be the next Ex Libris show. And it is then that I will present to you four books that could interest you that I think you should absolutely read and have. As usual, one of those books will also be presented through a 20-minute interview with the author himself. And I can now only repeat what I already said at the end of the last episode. In this new Ex Libris show, we will have another return on this podcast, the incredible and incomparable Lon Milo Duquette. He will talk to me about his latest published work. I'm sure this is something you do not want to miss. For today, though, it's now really coming to an end. And therefore, the only thing that I still need and want to say is take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.